All right, let's go ahead and begin for tonight. So welcome back. I know we're already off one week, but we're ready to get back into this and, and get into the, the fairway of this study. This new study we're starting on the doctrines of grace. This study, if you're with us a couple weeks ago, it's all about salvation. It's a study of salvation. In particular, who's responsible for salvation. We, we know what happens at salvation. We Everyone believes with you know, within the Christian community, the faith that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, that's the basis of our salvation. Now you must repent and believe to be saved. It's conversion and necessary. You must be born again. We all agree on that. It's just who brings that about? Who affects that change in a person? Is it God? Is it man? Is it both? Who is responsible for affecting salvation? And as we've been learning, there are two somewhat fairly distinct answers there. Behind two systems of, of theology, schools of thought, Calvinism and Arminianism. We're becoming more familiar with these two. The debate continues today, and we want to engage ourselves in this debate, learn more about it, and see what the scripture says. No one doubts that God is involved in salvation, it's just how much? Is God alone involved for man's salvation? Does man cooperate with God? Does man assist? Does man play a decisive part, or does salvation belong to God alone entirely? And how does God actually save people? Does he just zap people? Does he enable them to save themselves? How does that process actually work? Again, it all boils down to responsibility. God's responsibility and or man's responsibility in the work of salvation. That's what this study seeks to uncover and you'll get two different pictures, two different answers from these two schools of thought, Calvinism and Arminianism. So we want to to a degree we want to understand these theologies, but more importantly, we want to know what the Bible says. What does scripture say about God's role and man's role in salvation? Well, we just started a couple weeks ago we went through Part one of lesson one, we're starting with some historical background. It really is a perfect way to, to ease you into this study if it's new to you, if you don't know these terms or haven't heard about any of this, although most people, I think, have. It gets you situated, gets you acclimated to the terms and, and the differences in, in how Christians think about these issues. So starting with a historical background, it's a great place to, to begin. There's a lot we can learn from the past. And it will bridge the gap between the, the debate as it stands today. So last time, if you were here, a side note, if you weren't, they, they should have been on the website by now. I'll have to follow up with Regis. Um, we'll get them on as soon as possible. But the, the first lesson sometime soon will be on the website. And then hopefully on a weekly basis, the, the lessons will be on the website and the PDFs as well. Hopefully week by week in case you miss anything. But last time we, we began this introduction, historical introduction, not with... Calvin and Arminius, the main guys behind these two systems after which they're named, because the debate goes back much further to the 4th and 5th century AD to a pair of theologians named Augustine and Pelagius. Said a lot about them, learned a lot about them last time. Where we left off, we learned how Augustine, who the mo- who's the most influential early church father, he, he won. He, he demolished and dismantled Pelagius' views on these issues, and Augustine's views won the day. Augustine's views, his theology would be associated with what we would today call Calvinism, although he said it all a long time before Calvin, actually, but a view of a predestination. And so he, he won. He, the, the 
the church declared Pelagius and his, his beliefs as heretical. At the same time, the church wasn't too happy with the, this high-handed view of predestination that Augustine had. So a middle ground emerged, which became known as semi-Pelagianism. And even though that was on paper written off, still, throughout the, the Middle Ages, the, the Catholic Church essentially adopted a form of semi-Pelagianism, this view of where God and man cooperate in salvation, which today would fall under the, the camp of Arminianism. Remember the two terms that we covered, just, just to throw them out there to expand your vocab a little bit, monergism and synergism. Monergism, the belief, it's actually on your little cheat sheet notes for, for lesson one. Not much there, but just a, a reminder there. Monergism, it, it's that the belief that, that God alone works. He, he's the sole agent behind our salvation. Salvation belongs to God alone, and we are passive. Contrary to synergism, where God and man cooperate, work together to bring about our salvation, uh, man has a, a decisive role to play. So semi-Pelagianism reached the gap between the two extremes and de facto won the day throughout the Middle Ages. The Catholic Church <coughs> held to pretty much a form of semi-Pelagianism that God and man cooperate to bring about man's salvation. This lasted until the, the days of the Reformation, which brings us to our lesson for this evening. This second part to this first lesson on a historical background, again, just to ease you into it, bring you up to speed. The best way to do that, I think, is just going over the history because so much of what people still today argue about and debate about, have differences over, can be traced back many centuries. So we've gone to the beginning of the debate, 4th and 5th century ADs, when it really took off. And then it, not much going on until the 15th and 16th centuries, the debate really reemerges and thereafter. And that's what we're going to study this evening. We'll continue into this general introduction to the doctrines of grace, but we'll find how the debate shifted and evolved and progressed as today we get on to Calvin and Arminius. Last time, Augustine and Pelagius, the two sides today, Calvin and Arminius. We'll explore the two sides as they progressed. So just a little more background to, to get you up to speed here. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church, obviously the, the, the dominating religious factor in Europe, but things came to a boiling point. The abuses of the Catholic Church came to a boiling point, leading many people to break away from the church. They, they started to try and reform the Catholic Church from within. It didn't work. So eventually they, they sought to reform from without, or really just to break away. They protested the abuses of the Catholic Church, both in practice and in theology. Hence, they were known as the Protestants. And today, if you're generally a Christian, not a Catholic, you, are, you would fall typically under the branch of a Protestant. They were also known as Reformers. They fought, sought to reform the true Church of God according to the standard of Scripture alone, God's Word alone. Martin Luther is known as the father of the Protestant Reformation as he rediscovered the true gospel of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. In fact, as I've said several times, this year marks the 500-year anniversary of Luther sparking that Reformation. A generation later, though, came John Calvin, who's another shining star of the Reformation. He continued to reform the church according to God's word. And like Luther, Calvin impacted the church long beyond his days, 
In fact, his name came to be attached to essentially the doctrine of predestination. So what we're going to do in today's lesson, continue to explore the second major round of debate between these two sides, monergism, synergism, those who differ on God's role and man's role in salvation. And you'll see if you were with us last time how many links there are to the past, but we want to bridge it even further and get us to the debate as it stands today. And that is definitely where we want to go to Calvin, to Arminius. Last time I told you a bit about each of their lives and then each of their teachings. We'll do the same today. So we'll begin with Calvin's life. Just to help you get to know the guy a little bit. Calvin's life. John Calvin, born in France in 1509. He was a second generation reformer. Give you some perspective, when Martin Luther was nailing his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Church in 1517, Calvin was eight years old. So he was just a kid while Luther was getting things started. At age 14, he attended the University of Paris to study liberal arts. At the same time, as a side note, an Augustinian monk was burnt alive for following Luther. So the Reformation was starting, and he was just entering school, and already was, no pun intended, heating up. Calvin excelled in school as a humanist. He began to study theology, but he went on to instead study law at the request of his father. Interesting, it's the exact opposite of Martin Luther. Martin Luther defied his father, who wanted him to drop theology and study law. John Calvin obeyed his father, who wanted him to drop theology and study law. But they kind of ended up in the same place anyway. Calvin was suddenly converted in the late 1520s as he came into contact with these Reformation ideas. He later went on to describe his conversion as God just interjecting into his life and and changing him, which I think all of us can attest to. God turns you around and showed him how he was in error his entire life. Becoming a Protestant, eventually he had to free France because France was largely Catholic and persecution against these new Protestants was ramping up. In 1536, at age 27, he published the first edition of the Institutes. You ever heard of that? Calvin's Institutes. It was his greatest work. He would publish many editions. By far, the most significant book or or work to come out of the Reformation uh, really is a, you could say, a magnum opus uh, of, of his work. Later that year, 1536, Calvin settled in Geneva, He planned on passing through, spending only one day there. But a friend urged him to stay and help advance the Reformation in Geneva. So he agreed. Stayed there for a couple years. After two years, though, the city council kicked him out. They expelled Calvin from Geneva because of of their differences. They, they They didn't go with what he was saying. So he moved to Strasbourg, Germany in 1538. He got married. He taught. He preached. He wrote. Things were, things were okay. He was called back to Geneva, though, in 1541. Supporters of Calvin, they got control of the government, and they basically had a change in power, and they wanted to come back. They wanted to bring him back, and they compelled him to return. So he did at age 32. He moved back to Geneva, and he would stay there for the rest of his life. When he returned, interesting note, he, uh, he would have preaching duties, he picked up preaching the same place he left off. So several years earlier, he was just preaching expositionally, and, and they kicked him out. And when he came back years later, he just 
preached the next verse. The very next verse, he just picked up where he literally left off. Well, after 1533, or I think that should be 1543, there was no more opposition to Calvin in Geneva. Remember at this time, there was no separation between church and state. They were the same thing. And Geneva became a Christian city-state. And, and Calvin, as the lead pastor, he was the ruler. He essentially ruled Geneva. He was the, this church-state union leader of Geneva. And there was basically no more opposition. He, he had total control. That being said, we, we should never idolize any man. He's not without his faults. The big controversy or scandal during his years, surrounded a man named Michael Servetus. He was a Spanish heretic, denied the Trinity. He was arrested while passing through Geneva. He was convicted by their courts and sentenced to death by fire. Now, according to the government ordinance, that wasn't allowed. The worst punishment for heresy in this Christian city was banishment. But a mob mentality took over. And the point is, Calvin did not intervene to stop it which he certainly should have. We, we, we would agree, right? And he was indeed killed for his heresy. It's a blemish, a stain on his record. Uh, but I think a, a worthy reminder, we don't idolize any man or worship any man. We're all fallen servants of Christ. Even great men can have great sins or shortcomings, and uh, we all have them. But that's a little picture of Calvin and his, his life, his career in Geneva where he advanced the Reformation, found a safe haven where he could just study and write and preach all day, and he did. The commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation before, uh, before he died. Now, I'll give you a little intro to his teachings. We won't spend too much time here because, let's face it, most of the study will be studying Calvinism, and so we'll, we'll hear a lot about what he taught. Suffice it to say for now, he subscribed to the same monergism and predestination as Augustine. What many believe today might be called Calvinism, but as we learned, you'll, you'll find it. Augustine said most of it a thousand years before. Anyway, here's a, a brief summary of Calvin's beliefs. Remember last time I gave you four categories just to, just to give you some, some places to hang your thoughts. So I'll repeat those and tell you what Calvin believed, they'll be pretty much the same as Augustine. Number one was original sin. Original sin. Calvin agreed with Augustine on original sin. He believed man's depravity was hereditary, meaning inherited from birth. Our natures have been corrupted after the fall. There is a total depravity that affects all parts of the soul, emotion, intellect, and will. The season number two, the second category was human will. Human will, it has been handicapped by the fall such that our freedom is limited. We're, we're no longer free. Our, our wills have been bound by, by sin after the fall. Our fallen natures can choose only to sin. And that leads us to produce the deeds of the flesh, bringing us under God's wrath and condemnation. So, original sin, human will. Same as Augustine, more or less. Number three, God's grace. This led to his belief in God's grace. That through special revelation in the Holy Spirit, God's grace must convert the sinner. You're so lost, you're so depraved, your, your will is so bound, you, you can't save yourself. Nor can you even choose God. You're dead and lost. God, God's grace must 
supernaturally intervene to, to save you, to change you. A special grace is required. All people have an innate knowledge of God and his moral law, but depravity obscures natural revelation. So a, a supernatural intervention is needed if any are to be saved. Finally, number four, salvation. As a consequence, salvation is viewed as God's gift, whereby he brings us to new life. Faith itself was seen to be a gift of the Holy Spirit, where we're regenerated and led to repentance. Go down the list. It's all pretty square with what we learned Augustine believed. Uh, Today, though, it's not called Augustinianism, per se, but Calvinism. We'll see why later tonight. Now, keep in mind, in his time, Calvin never systematized these beliefs. He never made a systematic theology of predestination. He never created Calvinism. He never summarized his teaching under five points. You've heard of today the five points of Calvinism. He didn't create that. That was created by his followers. Now, granted, they were basing it largely off of his teachings, which is why it took his name. But it came after he was dead and gone. Again, we'll see that later tonight. The same thing goes for the other side. Arminianism wasn't organized into five points by Arminius. It came later. Now let's talk about the other side, the other guy in the debate, Arminius. We'll give you a little bit on Arminius's life. Arminius's life. His name is Jacob Herman. Born 1560 in Holland, although he's better known by the Latin of his last name, which is Arminius. He was raised a Protestant. At age 15, went to study in Germany. While he was there, his entire family was massacred by a raid of Catholic soldiers loyal to Spain. Crazy time, tumultuous time, the early years of the Reformation. There was literal war between Catholics and Protestants, often. They're all throughout Europe, and many died. Anyway, he was taken in by a Dutch minister. Later, he went to study in Geneva. Not under Calvin, but under Biza, who was Calvin's successor. In 1587, he returned to Amsterdam, and he became a rising star in the RCA. That's the Reformed Church of Amsterdam, uh, the Protestant Church in in Amsterdam. He was well-liked, and he married up. He married in a privilege, and was like a rising star there. The only thing was, in the Netherlands, Calvinistic theology dominated. And in 1589, Arminius was called on to defend the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. But as he got into it, he realized he didn't believe any of this. He did not agree. He couldn't defend it. He, he dissented. He found himself opposing Calvin. And so in the 1590s, Arminius and the rigid Calvinists came into conflict in Holland as he criticized them. He had a different take on, on Romans 7, Romans 9, these key passages that Calvin had, had made known. Nevertheless, in 1603, he took a position at Leiden. That's a very prominent, still today, university in Holland. Even under strong opposition, it's kind of surprising he got a job there because it was largely a Calvinistic school. And the theology professor, Gomeris, he was a staunch Calvinist, so that they butted heads during his time there. He even accused Arminius of being a secret sympathizer with the Jesuits of the Catholic Church. They were like the stormtroopers of the Catholic Church. 
literally like the Nazi stormtroopers later, they, they would go out and conduct raids and, and fight. Anyway, Arminius died in 1609 from tuberculosis, tuberculosis rather. <laughs> but his death did not spell the end of the controversy surrounding him. Much like Calvin, people continued to debate about his teachings long after and still a lot of controversy surrounding him. 1659. 1609. 1609 is when he died. So that's a little snapshot of his life. Let's give you a little snapshot of his teachings. Now first, on the topic of salvation by grace through faith, which is the rallying cry of the Reformation, right? He believed that. Arminius denied being Pelagian. And I think most of you are here two weeks ago, so that you should know what that means. He denied having anything to do with Pelagius, namely his belief in salvation apart from supernatural grace. Pelagius, remember that old guy from the 5th century, he believed that one can be righteous apart from God's intervention, apart from God's supernatural grace. You have all you need to, to be righteous before God, declared a, a heretic, rightly so. Arminius, or Arminius rather, did not believe that. He, he disagreed with Pelagius. Good, rightly so. Others have identified Arminius with semi-Pelagianism. Remember that came after. At the same time, though, he, he did not affirm that either. He affirmed that the initiative in salvation belongs to God. The semi-Pelagians, they rejected all the work salvation stuff of Pelagius, but they still believe that we can and we must make the first step to God. And then he meets us with his saving grace. We can take an unassisted first step towards God. Arminius did not believe that. He believed God's grace was still required even for the first step. And so he affirmed salvation by grace through faith. He believed Christ's righteousness is the only basis of our right standing before God. He believed that righteousness is imputed to us by faith through grace. So on all these points, he agreed with Calvin, which is good. We'll study this later, but this is why, no. Arminians today who, who believe this, now there's, there's a spectrum, there's different brands of, of Arminians, but Arminians today who believe this, they're, they're not heretics, they're not going to hell, they still have the true gospel. They'll just differ later on on how that salvation by grace through faith is applied. We'll get into that later. Now, I'll make a brief note. Why was he accused of being a heretic who denied salvation by grace through faith? Which he was by, by some of those people in, in Amsterdam. Well, it kind of boils down to this. This is just a preview. We will study this more later. Calvinists champion them themselves on believing salvation is purely an unearned gift. Purely an unearned gift. Humans must be totally passive in regeneration and justification. And salvation can truly be of grace alone if even acceptance is granted. In other words, it kind of comes down to this. Faith itself is a gift. That that's a distinct belief for mostly a distinct belief for Calvinists that even faith itself is a gift granted to them by God. Otherwise, faith becomes a type of work and gives the sinner a place of boasting. You can boast like, well, why are you saved and not the other person? Well, I had faith. I chose to believe and you have a grounds of boasting. This robs God of sovereignty and makes his decision of election dependent on the man who wills. 
In other words, Protestants, they separated from Catholics over this whole issue of justification by grace through faith. And Calvinists see grace through faith as being entirely of God. God's transforming grace is a gift. And even our faith itself is a gift. And that means salvation is entirely a work of God. He's giving you his grace, even giving you faith, enabling you to believe. Arminius disagreed with that last point. He saw God's grace as a gift, yes, but our faith not as a gift, something stemming from our free will. This leads to Arminius' view of provenient grace. Provenient grace. Now, again, just don't worry if some of this is flying by you. We will revisit all of this stuff many times as we keep going here. This is meant just to, just to get you into this, get you familiar, get you, you've heard the terms before. Uh, so just with that in mind. So that being said, though, let me tell you a little bit, introduce you to his concept of what's called prevenient, or prevenient grace. And for those of you note takers, I'll help you out. It's P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. And I, I did ha- actually, I've heard it both ways, so I did look it up how it's pronounced. And technically, it's, it's prevenient grace. It's like a, a veen in there. I always called it prevenient grace. It's easier, but so if, if you catch me, it's prevenient grace. I have to overemphasize. Anyway, he believed that our free will, so we have a free will. He believed our free will is unable to begin or perfect any spiritual good apart from grace. Now, did you catch that? that? That's good. He believed that our will is unable to begin to initiate or complete any spiritual good apart from grace. So grace is needed to change our will. He did believe in the necessity of God's grace to transform us. Hey, that's good. He did not believe, like Pelagius, that the conscience, the human conscience and God's word were enough. No, he spoke of the transforming grace of Christ in regeneration. Grace, God's grace is needed to bend our will back to God, to to free our will. However, the difference is that he believed such grace was given to everybody. You already have it. It's given to everybody. God gives this grace to everybody. He, He counteracts the effects of the fall. God restores the will. Such grace is necessary to do so, and Arminius believed God gave this grace to everybody already. This grace is called provenient grace, meaning to go before. It goes before all men, or you could say it's given before all men. You can also call it preceding grace. God, after the fall, he already, even though the fall did affect people, did mess us up, we might be depraved, we might have wills that are affected by the fall, But God thereafter shed the globe with his grace. And so everybody already has been given grace that counter effects these work, uh, that counter countermands the effects of the fall, that, that undoes the effects of the fall, and that restores the freedom of our will. We've already been given that grace. Here, Arminius also differs from the semi Pelagians. They believed in a type of universal grace, but they didn't see it as a supernatural transforming work. Again, those the semi-Pelagians, they believed that man can take that first step without any assisting grace. You don't need any assisting intervention to take that first step. 
Arminius basically believed he needed to take the step, but God's grace had to do something first. It's just he had a different conception of this grace. We will study this whole idea of grace, what the difference between irresistible grace and, and what he describes here later, but he believed it had to come first, which is good because salvation is by grace through faith. Now, how that grace is doled out, there will be differences between the two sides, but at least it's still salvation by grace through faith. And, and that's, that's a good thing. That's where he differs from Pelagius, who, who was heretical. Now, I did mention irresistible grace. Arminius believed that this grace that God just blankets the globe with, it can be resisted. It, it can be resisted. You can, you can turn it down. In other words, the person must allow God's grace to work in his life. Only then does it become justifying grace, resulting in a person's salvation. This means conversion. It's not a good work. It's simply acceptance. You are accepting what God did for you. And you must do so. You must repent. You must believe and accept the work of salvation to be saved. Joe? Uh, I want to refer to this verse. Chapter 11, the book of Acts. Verse 18. It's when they heard this, they cried down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance yeah, that's a great verse. We will, um, in Acts 11, we'll certainly be looking at that and others later that speak of God granting faith, granting repentance. That's the first step anyway. Yeah, and uh, so we'll get there. We'll get there, but it's good that you pointed out already. Um, but he did not believe that. So by way of contrast, Arminius did not believe God had to grant specially, specifically the gift of faith, rather this Provenient grace went out to all. You can you can reject it, but if you accept it, it restores your ability to choose God, and it's given to all. Any questions at this point? So I know so that may be a lot of new terms for you. We're, we're kind of tracking with three schools of thought, right? The old Pelagianism, the semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, and then even Calvinism. So I guess four. But any other questions at this point? You guys just you getting you getting it? Okay, okay, stay with me. And you guys know you can ask questions at any time. So you should be able to tell at the very least that Arminius denied monergism and held to synergism, that God and man must cooperate together to bring about a, a salvation. He taught firmly against unconditional election and irresistible grace. He interpreted Romans 9 as not referring to individuals, but classes of people as predestined by God. So in other words, the Bible talks about predestination. The Bible talks about election. You can't get around it. It's just how are you going to interpret it? And so Arminius interpreted predestination as not referring to individuals. God never predestines individuals to salvation. He predestined a class of people. So he predestined believers to salvation. If you insert yourself into that class by believing... By having faith, which you must exercise of your free will, well, you, you're predestined. So predestination becomes not a, an individual thing, but, but a corporate thing. One way that he would view predestination. We will talk about that later. Now, speaking of predestination, like I said, he did believe in it. But he believed that any notion of predestination had to be made compatible with God's love and human free will. So he believed 
that Adam did not fall as a result of the decree of God. God didn't, God didn't ordain Adam's fall. He, just, he allowed it to happen. He granted permission. He made a distinction between God letting something happen and God making something happen. Therefore, he ha- he ha- you ha- if you believe that, you have to believe that God could not prevent the fall after he gave humans the gift of free will. Arminius believed in God's self-limitation as he gave humans the ultimate gift of liberty. In other words, if you take this view, you have no choice but to believe that God bound his will in order to give us free will. For us to be willing and to have a freedom of a will, God must restrain his own will. We'll get into more of that later. Now, regarding instances of specific predestination uh, of individual predestination which he did address if it is to happen he held to that belief he's not the first but he held to the belief that god predestined people based on the foreknowledge of their free choices which is this is the view of armenians today that god before creation he foresaw he looked forward into time and he foresaw who would believe who would persevere into the end and then he elected them so God used his foreknowledge to, to predestine people. This is how he could affirm man's free will to be among the elect. You, you choose if you're among the elect or, or not, he would say. Okay, that's just an introduction. I hope some of this is sticking. Some of it will. And if not, well, we'll we're going to cover all this ground in greater detail with actual Bible verses attached to it in the weeks to come. But here's an introduction to these two prominent theologians from the Reformation era with two diverging theologies about salvation, about the application of salvation. I want to take it one step further, though, in this historical introduction and talk about the conflict that came after they both died, because this will bridge the gap and get us to to how this debate is often framed today. So after they died, it came down to this thing called the Remonstrant Controversy. The Remonstrant Controversy. Okay, R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-T. Remonstrant Controversy. It was in Holland. At the time, Holland was struggling with its Catholic heritage and the dominion of Catholic Spain. Rebels had united the provinces of the Netherlands against Spanish rule. Holland was the largest of the provinces. And so accordingly, the Dutch, they created their own state church as they were breaking away from the Catholics. And it was the RCA, the Reformed Church of Amsterdam, started in 1566. And like I said, it was heavily Calvinistic. Arminius was a very controversial figure in the church. And like I said before, he was cleared of early charges of heresy, but still trouble followed him division over his teaching and he he gathered some followers versus calvin's teaching they became extreme such that it threatened civil war they were going to start fighting over their differences in in theology remember when church and state are one that's going to happen arminius he died in the middle of the controversy in 1609 but after his death 46 dutch ministers composed a document known as a remonstrance and that just means like it's a protest. It's a reproachful protest. And they were protesting the government slash, slash the church, saying, here's why you should change, basically. Here's why we think you're wrong. 
the document was known as a, the Remonstrance, which is why it's called the Remonstrant Controversy. This document summarized Arminius's teaching and his opposition to Calvinism in five points. So this is where the whole notion of five points begins. And thereafter, Arminians also became known as the Remonstrants. You might hear that term today, the Remonstrants, the, that's the original guys who created the five points of Arminius. That's how it started. Before there are five points of Calvinism, there first were five points of Arminianism. While division continued, rioting broke out in the Netherlands for and against the Remonstrants. Eventually, Prince Maurice of Nassau, or I think it's Nassau. I don't know how to pronounce Nassau. I'm going to have to look that one up too. Well, it's the Bahamas because the Dutch colonized the Bahamas. Is it Nassau? Is it N-A-S-S-A-U? Yeah. I thought it was Nassau. Nassau? Is that what I said? Okay. I'll have to look that one up too. I know what you meant, so I don't care. I know. Well, anyway, the prince of that place (laughs) stepped in on the side of the Calvinists. In 16.8, he ordered the leading Armenians arrested and jailed, pending a national synod of theologians to settle the debate. And so the Synod of Dort met from November 1618 to May 1619. This is where it was settled for them, the Synod of Dort. It was attended by 84 Dutch delegates and 27 delegates from Germany, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. So they just assembled a bunch of theologians like, you guys need to figure this out. Basically, this prince stepped in and said, figure it out. We're not going to war over it, so settle the issue. So all these theologians gathered, gathered at the Synod of Dort to, to study. And over seven months and 154 sessions, they considered all the claims of the remonstrants and their five points. And by the end, they rejected all of them. They completely rejected the remonstrants and their five points. Basically, Arminius' teachings, they, they rejected. And so they formed a rebuttal. That rebuttal became official church doctrine. Remember RCA, Reformed Church of Amsterdam? Their rebuttal became new state law, basically. Church law, state law. And the rebuttal, they phrased the rebuttal in five points to to, to counter the five points of Arminianism. And so their rebuttal became known as the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism. So it, it all originated as a rebuttal of five points of Arminianism. Keep in mind, Calvin had had been dead for 50 years at this point. Now, like I said, this Reformed teaching was reflected in Calvin's writings, but he never organized this theology in such a way. He never debated those who had come to be known as Arminians. Well, as the Synod concluded, the Remonstrant leaders were condemned as heretics, 200 of them were deposed, meaning they lost their ministries. 80 of them were sent to exile or imprisoned. Again, a lot of stuff like that happened when church and state were one. So for the time being, the Calvinists won the day in Amsterdam, but things would change over time. So that's the huge controversy that took place in the 17th century that gave us what we know today as TULIP. You guys heard of this? I think you have. I gave you a little questionnaire seeing if you've heard of it. And if you know what it stands for, the debate today often 
is, is framed around these five points. Each side has, has their five points that they argue for. And you know what? It actually is a pretty good way to summarize the debate, to summarize the key points of differences. You don't hear them phrased in different ways. I gave you a little handout. And, and so if you look at the, the first letter of the five points of Calvinism, they spell out the word tulip, which is why they're often called that. And it's it fitting because you see many pictures of, of a tulip with five petals or whatever, and, and so I guess it's a fitting acronym, versus the five points of Arminianism. And they, they diverge on different perspectives of God's role and man's role in salvation. And you can uh, look at your little summary if you want. The Arminian view will champion free will, conditional election, unlimited atonement, obstructible grace or resistible grace, and falling from grace. Whereas Calvinist view will hold to a total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Each of these five, they correspond to one another in a basically opposite way, mostly. And pretty much for the rest of this study, we're going to be going over the, these five points, looking at both sides, and then going to scripture, seeing what the Bible says about them. We will follow this basic framework because there is a logical flow to it. The remonstrants, when they presented their five points, there was a flow to them. So one led to the other, led to the other, and, and same way with the five points of Calvinism. So it's, it's a good way to organize a study. Just go down the list and, and kind of blow each one out and study it. So that, that's what we're going to do in the weeks and months to come. For now, it, it, you would do well to get familiar with these five points of both sides and, uh, and the five points of Cal, Calvinism, TULIP, it, it's handy to, to know them, although you'll hear them often phrased differently. People like to substitute different terms, but we'll get into all that later. So that's a little historical intro. I'll finish just real quick here. And just for the fun of it, real, in a real fast forward way, tell you how Arminianism and Calvinism spread from the 1600s to today. Just talk about their legacy. What happened after this? Real quick, so Arminianism, they were all kicked out of the Netherlands, but after a little while, they came back and they basically took over. It really took off in the Netherlands and it spread to England and North America. Through the Anglicans, the General Baptists, the Methodists, Arminianism spread throughout England and into the colonies. And so today, Arminianism, it's still the official position of the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, and many Baptist denominations. So you walk into those churches, you, you pretty much know, by, by definition, what they're going to believe. In the 18th century, so especially in, the, in, the, in England and the Americas, Arminianism split. There became a, a pietistic branch, like, like a holy, holiness branch, and then a liberal branch. The pietistic branch had some very good and godly men, like the Wesley brothers. You know the Wesleys, we sing a lot of their songs, and, and they really took Arminianism to a new level. They created Methodism, the Methodist Church, which is really part and parcel with Arminianism. They were good and godly men, though, contrast to the liberal branch, and they started getting into straight-up heresy like deism. A lot of the founding fathers, believe it or not, they were Christian in the broadest sense, but they were deists. They were these liberal Arminians that were, were deists, and we would say clearly, you know, heretics. Anyway, this divide between the Arminians continues today. There are some exceptions, but 
many Armenian churches, like you know, probably the church across the street, and they've gone down the road of liberalism. It's just where it has gone down the road of liberalism. The, the latest branch of extreme Armenian liberalism in the past 20 years is called open theism. Gone so far as to deny God's foreknowledge. We're not going to get into that right now or, or anytime soon. But some of the some of these people, like Clark Pinnock, they've gone so far as to deny the substitutionary atonement. And honestly, they sound more like Pelagius. They're, they're going back, and, and that, that's some, some bad stuff, some dangerous stuff, I would say. The legacy of Arminianism was also found in the revival movements of the late 1800s, early 1900s, like Charles Finney. You heard of Finney before? And it's really the ancestors of today's seeker-sensitive movement. The reasoning goes like this. If salvation is dependent on man's will, Finney believed that man's will can and must should be manipulated. That we need to do whatever we can to manipulate the will to believe. It's really up to us to believe, up to us to get people to believe. So into all sorts of tactics to, to manipulate the will to get a decision. And that's where it started, actually. Many today still emphasize this need to get people to make a decision for Christ. We just need to get them to bend their will to make that decision, and, and they're in. Now, you might fall away, but that's also part and parcel with Arminian theology. But again, we make another decision, just keep them, keep them coming back. And that's, well, for whatever it's worth, that's still around today. Now, on the flip side, Calvinism. It, too, flourished in England and North America. Primarily in the Presbyterian Church. So Scotland, John Knox, the founder, the, the forefather of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, you'll see pr- pretty much any Presbyterian church today will be Calvinistic. I'm not sure if there's any exceptions, to be honest with you. Uh, maybe there are, but typically a, a Presbyterian church, and there's many different flavors of Presbyterian churches, but they should be Reformed. They should be Calvinistic. Any church that's non-denominational but has the word Reformed in its name, Likewise, it's going to be a, a Calvinistic, Calvinistic church, as well as many independent churches you'll find typically in large part are Calvinistic. Like I said, Calvinism flourished in England. You might hear of these guys called the English Divines. They were just theologians. They gathered in 1643 to create the Westminster Confession of Faith. That became a, a landmark document in, in the in church history. Is still used by many today as a great summary of the faith. We're not huge into doctrinal statements. We just want to know what the scripture says. But look, to, to the degree that any doctrinal statement accords with the word, it's good. And in many respects, the Westminster Confession of Faith is good. Especially when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. It, it, it puts forth a very classical view of Calvinism. And we'll, we'll reference it here and there as time goes, time goes on. Today, also the Southern Baptist Convention, it's diverse, but it possesses many Reformed or Calvinistic pastors in its rank. With Baptists, I find you never really know what you're going to get. They're just kind of all over the board. They're, they're so splintered. Like some could be Armenian, some could be Calvinistic. Who knows? You really don't know until you get to know them. Okay, so we'll, we'll leave it there. This, this will conclude for now, although we can keep going, this historical intro to the debate. Again, the only goal here, the hope, is just to familiarize you with these terms, with the debate. A lot of what is still debated today, especially all these guys on their internet forums, which, which I thankfully can't stand and, and don't waste much time on. But they're still debating the same things that they were being debated in the 16 and 1700s. And to a degree, 
even back in the 4th and 5th century. And that little historical perspective can help you, and like I said, at the very least, familiarize you with what we're going to be studying in the weeks and months to come. Again, we want to look at, to, to some degree, both sides, and understand what people believe, what their differences are, where their differences come from. But ultimately, our goal will be to then turn to Scripture, find out what God, God's Word says, and see where it lands on God's word in man's and or God's role and man's role in salvation. Okay, well that'll do it for tonight. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then I'll give you a little note about your other handout. So let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, we praise you this evening for this little study, not in your word per se, but but through the the annals of church history. You are a faithful God, and you've worked in and through your people throughout time. The gospel has never been lost. The scripture has never been lost, and we, we praise you for your preserving work. Uh, a faithful men you've raised up throughout the ages to champion the true gospel. So we thank you for those faithful. We thank you for the reformers and, and men who recaptured the gospel from the Catholic Church. And we are their ancestors today in a way, Lord, and, and we want to likewise champion the true gospel. And, and that's what matters most. Lord, when it comes to these, these other issues about uh, the, the, some finer details of, of the work of salvation, we just pray as time goes on, you, you make it clear. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal your word to us. Help us to study. Help us to understand. We want to know, Lord. May we humbly approach your word and, and be blessed by you to seek, to know, to understand. Also that you might be glorified, Lord. We want to get it right. That we can rightly know you, rightly walk before you, rightly worship you. And so we pray for your blessing on our time at, 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 in the weeks and months to come, Lord. We praise your name this evening and, and bless us as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so a, a quick final note here. Some of you got binders or you got the handout. You'll see one that says Lesson 2. The way I'm going to do the handouts is give you them in a week in advance. Lord willing, I'll do my best. Should be pretty good. And they're basically just, just homework. It's optional, of course. There's no grade. No one's going to check. But it's for your own benefit. I encourage you to do them. Even if you, you kind of put some of your other bonus studies on the side, this, this should be great Bible study. They're getting you in Scripture. Having you make observations from the text. Having you study the text and see what you come up with. Then each week we'll come back. We'll study that lesson in greater detail. And, and go one by one that way. So you have lesson two. Do that by next Wednesday. We'll come back and we'll begin with the fall. And you'll see where we go from then on. It all hopefully makes sense. So that'll do it for tonight. We'll see you guys next week. This is it? No. Yeah, I'll get you a copy. You may have ran out. Yeah, I think maybe I got the last one.